Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. I'm Al Cresta, getting my notes together here as we spend the next two hours looking over what uh, the justices wrote in the Dobbs decision, the dissenters, the majority opinion, and also the concurring opinions. With me right now to lead off looking at the majority opinion is Lee Strang. He's professor of law and values at the University of Toledo. He's published dozens of articles in the fields of constitutional law and interpretation, property law, and religion in the First Amendment. He's the author of Originalism's Promise, a Natural Law Account of the American Constitution. Lee, good to have you with me. Thank you again. I'm delighted, Al. Well, let's go to it. Uh, The the majority opinion says that the critical question is whether the Constitution, properly understood, confers a right to obtain an abortion, and also points out that the Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision— really actually skipped over uh, that the constitutional question and simply reaffirmed Roe uh, on the basis of stare decisis. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. And a great introduction. And in fact, Roe, as Alito's opinion for the majority of the court in the Dobbs case identifies, Roe itself was very, I'll say, undisciplined in its uh, approach towards the Constitution. So if you step back and you think about what role do judges have in our legal system? They interpret and apply the law. And the law that's at issue in Roe, in Casey, and in Dobbs is the U.S. Constitution. And one way to know whether the Constitution governs something is if the text of the Constitution says so expressly. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing expressed in the Constitution about abortion. Uh, Alito notes that. And then he makes uh, a second move. And the second move is, even if something isn't patent in the Constitution, it could be implied or implicit in the Constitution. And so an example might be, um, we, the, the Constitution protects the freedom of speech, and there are lots of aspects to communicative activity that fall under that rubric, even if they might not be patent in that designation, in that label. And so the question that the Roe Court addresses and that the Casey Court skips over is, does the word liberty in the 14th Amendment protect a right to abortion? And so the Roe case and the Casey case and the Dobbs case are all about whether or not the 14th Amendment's due process clause adopted in 1868 implicitly protects a right to abortion. Interesting. So does, does Roe make that appeal to the 14th Amendment? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question, Al. And uh, it, it, it does, but in, in, a, in an extremely odd way. I actually do, do not enjoy teaching the Roe case, because as a teacher, my goal is always to give the best interpretation, the best argument for whatever it is that we're covering. It could be a case I agree with, sure. or it could be a case like Roe that I don't agree with. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's actually hard to put a, a strong uh, argument in favor of Roe, because the Roe court, in the text of the opinion written by Justice Blackman, they are intentionally ambiguous about what part of the Constitution protects the right to abortion. They say it could be the Ninth Amendment. They say it could be a bunch of other amendments incorporated through the 14th Amendment. 
And then they also say it could be liberty. And I actually have kind of a, a, an anecdote about that where when I was in law school, one of the things that us nerdy law students like to do was to listen to the oral arguments of famous cases. <laughs> and I listened to, to the oral argument for Roe versus Wade. And, and there was Sarah Weddington for, uh, for Jane Roe and then Texas's uh, attorney general. And the argument went on and on. And, and what's, what's interesting, Al, is that the last question asked by the justices, not the first question, the last question asked by the justices to Sarah Weddington, Rose attorney, was, and where in the Constitution do you find the right to abortion? And her answer was, it could be A, it could be B, it could be C. <laughs> and Justice Blackman essentially parrots that response. And it's, I think it's a way to, for our audience to understand that was characteristic of the era, the, 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 the Supreme Court opinions and the Warren Court and the early Burger Court were pretty undisciplined, I would say unlawyerly, in their treatment of the Constitution. And so I think the best interpretation of Roe is it was about the word liberty. That's, okay. that's, that's my charitable interpretation. All right. All right. I'm just curious about the, the self-understanding of the justices or their, their, how they understood their task. Mm-hmm. In, in the, uh, the Warren era, and you mentioned the early part of the Burger era, did, mm-hmm. did they did they see themselves as um, expert, not merely in the Constitution, but in kind of detecting the where history was going, where the, the society was moving, and they want to get the court out in front of that trend? What, exactly. How did they understand? If it wasn't the Constitution, then what was governing? Yeah. So there's there's lots of debates. What what was what was Earl Warren? What did what did Justice Brennan? What did they think that they were doing? And I think one way that's a way to understand that is to look at their own papers. And so for most of the justices, after a period of time after their passing, their papers become public. And Justice Blackman, the author of the Roe opinion, his papers became public about fifteen twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to read through them. And I was especially interested in what did he think what he was doing with Roe because. As the Alito opinion points out, there's a lot of stuff in the Roe opinion that doesn't really seem relevant to the question of, does the Constitution protect a right to abortion? So, for example, Blackman talks about uh, the ancient Greek attitudes towards abortion, which, <laughs> boy, at best, is tangentially relevant. Right. And so what, what, what I found, and honestly, Al, I was scandalized when I read this, and, and I, I hope your audience is as well, you see the correspondence between Justice Blackman, the author of Roe, and his clerk, who was the person who actually drafted the opinion, uh, it was a young, recent law graduate named Randall Bazanson. And in the correspondence, it's actually, there's a bunch of back and forth, so it's really interesting to read. It's, it's publicly available. But they come to this, to this key point where they've decided, we're going to say there's a constitutional right to abortion. And then they say, okay, well, how, how much of a right to abortion is there? Is it for you know one week, 15 weeks, the entire nine months? And, and Byzantin literally says, he, he makes the decision. Byzantin says, I think we should stick with viability. And he says, this is a close paraphrase, that's as good a line as any other. So it was, <laughs> it, it was entirely detached wow. from the text, history, and precedent of the American Constitution. And so what were they thinking? I, I'm not sure, Al. I mean, I think they were thinking they had, they had the power to try to implement good policy, and that they were going to utilize it in a way that they thought thought was was best, and that is not when you read the Alito the Alito majority opinion today, you see a disciplined, lawyerly approach to the U.S. Constitution. So it's really a, a dramatic culture shift, both on the court and off the court. When does can you tell us when that shift 
begins to take place with the Supreme Court? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of things contributed to it. Some of them just raw politics. Uh, so uh, President Nixon, when he ran for uh, president in 1968, uh, he ran in response to many of the Supreme Court's excesses, especially the Miranda case. And he said, I'm going to, quote, appoint strict constructionists. And you got, for example, Justice and then later Chief Justice Rehnquist out of that. Okay. I think other aspects were were jurisprudential. So the rise of originalism in its modern form coincided almost exactly chronologically with cases like Roe. So the first law review article that is a, a modern-ish originalist argument was by, by then law professor Robert Bork uh, in 1972. And so I think politically and then jurisprudentially over time, you saw both the public wanted and the legal profession responded by identifying judges who viewed their role as interpreting and applying the law in a, in a traditional conception of text, structure, history, and precedent. Interesting. Uh, let me just stay a little longer on this, uh, because mm-hmm. it comes up uh, in in the dissent, I believe, where they, 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 they look at the majority opinion, which says there's no uh, right to abortion in the 14th Amendment. Uh, mm-hmm. And they say, well, that's what's so what? There's no right uh, for a woman's vote in the 14th Amendment as well. Okay. Uh, so, obviously, there's some way of reading the 14th Amendment with respect for its original context that acknowledges that you can find a right for a woman's vote there, but not a right for abortion. How does that work? Yeah. Well, so it's, it's a little bit complicated. I'll say a couple of things. One option that's on the table, and that some of the justices, like Justice Thomas in his concurrence, which I know you're going to talk about later, mm-hmm. approaches is, we're going to look at the public meaning of the text at the time. And in 1868, the public meaning of liberty, this is Thomas's argument, which I agree with, did not include abortion, but would include other activities. Mm-hmm. And so, it, so it's the historical context at that time that identifies what's protected or not protected. The Alito opinion actually uses what I would call a a middle-of-the-road approach, and it comes from a 1995 case that we don't talk a whole lot about now much anymore called Washington versus Glucksburg, and it dealt with the claim of whether there was a constitutional right to assisted suicide. And the opinion written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, so going back to Rehnquist again, Mm -hmm. what he did was he knew he didn't have the votes, and there still aren't the votes, frankly, to get rid of the idea of unenumerated constitutional rights like a right to abortion, but he thought, I've got the votes to cabinet, to limit it, to make it more law-like. And the test that he identified, which Justice Alito utilizes in this opinion, is that a constitutional right is a right that is, quote, deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the American people. Yeah. And so some mm-hmm. rights, like voting or carrying a gun, for example, thinking of some other cases that have come down recently, mm-hmm. are deeply rooted but as Alito argues, I think incredibly persuasively in his Dobbs opinion, majority, uh, abortion is not one of those. And so, so the response I would make to the dissent is that under, under current law, there, we're not in, in originals camp yet, yet, but what we're at is a kind of a middle of the road between the freewheeling days of Warren and Burger Court mm-hmm. and, and the originalists of Justice Thomas. And, 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 and if you think about it, one of the things that judges, I, I tried to train lawyers, we spend a lot of time looking at 
we look backwards, right? We look at history, right. we look at statutes and cases, and that's something that's a lawyerly-like activity. So it's not, it's one that I think most small-c conservative Americans would be comfortable with, that, that kind of middle-of-the-road approach. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think people like that because they don't feel it's, they feel they can follow the argument if it's rooted in a text, mm-hmm. you know, they can make some sense of it, and they can follow the argument if it's rooted in the longstanding uh, tradition of, yeah. you know, us as yeah. a people. So, yeah. uh, Lee, hold it, it there. Back. We'll come back sure, and continue yeah. the conversation. My guest is Professor Lee Strang, University of Toledo. We're taking a look today at the Dobbs decision, and Lee's giving us uh, a look at the majority opinion, and then throughout the afternoon we'll be looking at the various justices' opinion. I'm Al Cresto. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today we're looking at the uh, various opinions in the Dobbs decision. And we're with, uh, right now, we're with Lee Strang, professor of law and values at the University of Toledo. We've been looking over the majority opinion, which we'll continue doing here. And uh, as he pointed out at the very beginning of our conversation, this is really about uh, the idea of liberty and uh, what is meant uh, by liberty. Uh, in the Constitution, in the history of our nation. And um, you can see that uh, the court is uh, reviewing, in in the majority opinion, they review the standard that uh, the court's cases have used to determine uh, whether the 14th Amendment's uh, reference to liberty actually protects particular rights, all right? But uh, Roe is funny in that uh, it has this kind of right to privacy idea is somehow kind of amorphous. I mean, you can find it in the first, the fourth, the fifth, the ninth, the fourteenth amendments. Casey decision tries to clean that up. I think I think that's what they're doing. I think they're trying to clean that up, and they try to ground the decision and protect the central holding in Roe uh, that is a right to an abortion. They try to to ground that solely in the fourteenth amendments uh, uh, due process clause. Is that a fair way of putting it. Yeah, so I would I would describe it as they try to recharacterize Roe in a way that is more plausible, but they don't but they don't put much weight on the recharacterization. The weight is on star decisis. I, I guess that that's right. On precedent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I just I guess I have to ask if, if, if something we know from the the infamous Plessy v. Ferguson decision, which mm-hmm. found the constitutional protection for segregation under the principle of separate but equal. We saw that that was a disastrous decision, which was then overturned in Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. So we know that uh, decisions can be longstanding and still be overturned. Did Casey mm-hmm. just not think that Roe, I mean, it was only, you know, here we are 50 years uh, from Roe. At the time yeah. there was Casey, we were 20 years <laughs> from Roe. So didn't they think 20 years wasn't that long a precedent? Yeah. So I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure what, what was going on in their minds. What we can do is we can look at the, the, the opinion that, that the three justices, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter wrote, and, and the arguments that they gave. And there were two things about their justification for following Roe 
based on the principle of stare decisis, which is the principle that lawyers follow in the Anglo-American tradition that if one case has been decided away, we should, for the most part, continue to follow that case. And there were two things that were really odd about the arguments in Casey, both of which Justice Alito picks up and picks apart. One of them was this idea of reliance. So it is a core aspect of stare decisis that if there's been a case decided and a whole bunch of people have built their lives, planned based on that precedent, then you know, that's a pretty good reason to continue to follow it. And where this really comes, uh, comes, to, to, comes to play a role is property law. So I teach property law, and one of the things that I think my students get astounded by is not only are the property law rules that we follow relatively old, many of them are not, probably not the rules that we would choose if we were writing carte blanche. Mm. But I think it's an, it's an evidence that we have so many people who rely, you know, their houses are there, their businesses are there on property and then the stability of title that judges are just really wary about, about, about overturning precedent. But you know, when you think about abortion, at most, a person could, re- quote, rely on access to abortion for approximately nine months. And you could imagine a court saying, OK, because of that reliance interest, we'll stay our ruling for nine months, so that way everybody can have their reliance interest uh, right, met. Right. But but the Casey Court didn't do that. They recharacterized reliance in a way that I think is unique, where they talked about reliance isn't an individual relying on a rule of law, which is what we were talking about. It's this relatively amorphous idea of women couldn't have their role in America, couldn't be equal in America, unless we had widespread access to abortion. So, so it was, it was a it was a really unusual way. That's a nice way to put it, to think of reliance. And so that's that's one odd characteristic of the Casey opinion. Wow. The second well, odd characteristic. Uh, before before you go to the oh, second sure. one, what about yep. since that's an empirical question that presumably could be decided by proper disciplined social science research? What if we found out that there is no correlation? between uh, women having access to abortion and their, uh, their advancement in economically, professionally, socially. Would, would that and, make, make the, the decision moot? I, so I, I think that's right, Alan. I, I agree with you in principle that it seems like you could do, you could do semi-controlled studies to, to see jurisdictions that have widespread access to abortion and those that don't, and are, are there correlations between, with women's mobility and equality? And one of the things that if you, there are a whole bunch of briefs, as you might expect, that were submitted to the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, and a large chunk of them dealt with differing claims regarding whether abortion was necessary for women's equality. Okay. And I think a fair characterization is, you know, some people said yes, and some people said no. <laughs> and, and as a lawyer, I, I don't feel confident, and I'm pretty confident Justice Alito and the other Supreme Court justices didn't feel confident in being able to decide among these social scientist debates that were going on. Yeah. So I think in principle, okay. you're right, but, but as opposed to do, do property owners rely on a particular rule of law when they buy, when they buy Blackacre? And, and that's something that lawyers feel much more confident in their judgments. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that yeah. was odd about the Casey opinion. Okay. And the second thing that was odd about the Casey opinion was the court said that part of stare decisis is how would a decision impact the American people's view of the Supreme Court? And what the plurality in Casey said was, if we overrule Roe, then people, people will, be, uh, will view the Supreme Court as a, as a naked political institution, as not an institution committed to the rule of law. And th- the thing that's odd about that is, that was new and unique, right? That kind of 
view of stardesisis had never been employed before, mm. and I don't think it's been employed since. Wow. And just like our conversation we had with Reliance, you know, my own view is that, you know, maybe it depends on which circles you travel in socially, but my own view is that Casey continued to undermine people's views of the Supreme Court, right. which is the opposite of what they were thinking. So there were two odd, two deeply odd and unusual characteristics of the plurality's, plurality's opinion, which suggested to me that, first, that the plurality did not think that the, the, uh, the, the argument for a constitutional right to abortion as a matter of first principles was very good. And so they had to resort to these other extra arguments, these other new arguments to try and bolster the conclusion that they should follow. Mm. And it also struck me, Al, that people who believe that abortion is necessary to the equality of women and people who believe that overruling Roe would, would make the American people think that the Supreme Court is not an institution committed to the rule of law, that they, they travel in very narrow circles, right? Yeah. Because the, the intuitions of the people that I hang out with socially are the opposite, the opposite in both context. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I think part of what was driving the decision was that the Supreme Court justices live in rarefied atmospheres of mm-hmm. people who are very like-minded. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would agree with that. Uh, take us to this question. The court examined whether the right uh, to obtain an abortion is rooted in our nation's history and tradition, and therefore it makes up what we historically call ordered liberty. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me this is where Roe was so terribly wrong. It completely misunderstood the history uh, on this point. Can you refer, mm-hmm. tell us what the court was uh, thinking here? Yeah, so the, the Justice Blackman famously or infamously spent an entire summer up at the Mayo Clinic re- purporting to research the history of abortion. And, and as I mentioned earlier, he did talk about what the Greeks and the Romans did. Yeah. But boy, he spent precious little time on what England and the United States did. Yeah. And what he, what he did say was, I think, patently wrong. So I, I actually submitted an amicus brief in the Dobbs case about the question of whether unborn human beings are persons within the meaning of the 14th Amendment yeah. and therefore have a right to life. Yeah. And, it, it, and it required me to read all the scholarship on that subject. And the scholarship, I think, is incredibly powerful, saying that abortion not only has never been a, a, a legal right in the United States or the United Kingdom, it's always to some degree or other, sometimes greater, sometimes lesser, been proscribed criminally. And that's not the stuff out of which you make right. constitutional rights. Yeah. And so, yeah. so what explains that? I think one thing was that Justice Blackman relied on uh, two notorious law review articles by a, a, a purported scholar named Cyril Means. Cyril Means uh, wrote a couple of law review articles contemporaneous with Roe, making the historical claim that Blackman then parroted. And, and Means was uh, working in, in conjunction with uh, Jane Rose attorneys and, and legal team. So, oh. so it was just terrible scholarship. And, and it, I think it is a sign of the times, uh, going back to the sign of the times as well, that, that Justice Blackman did not feel the need, and apparently that the, the parties didn't feel the need, to provide robust historical evidence uh, for, 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 that, for the proposition. Let me come back to the question of liberty then. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, what does it mean? I mean, it, it's one of those words that we can use to justify about anything we want to do when we want to do it, but certainly that's not the historic meaning of the term within constitutional thinking. What mm-hmm. What is liberty, and what is liberty as opposed to ordered liberty? That, so the, the, what we're talking about is one clause in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, 
or property without due process of law. And that clause, called the Due Process Clause, actually goes way back to Magna Carta and what was called the Law of the Land Provisions. And the basic idea was King John couldn't throw people in jail, couldn't take away their property, couldn't kill them unless uh, under the judgment of the, the defendant's peers. And, and so that at least means, everybody agrees, that the word liberty means you can't be put in prison unless you have notice and a hearing. So that's one thing that, that there's widespread consensus on. Mm-hmm. And then there's, here's where things get controversial. The second question is, where, th- where things get controversial is, does the word liberty include the first eight amendments in the Bill of Rights? So the right to free speech, the right to keep and bear arms, mm-hmm. et cetera. And there was a process in the early 20th century, which was very controversial at the time. My impression is that it, its controversy has waned, that the Supreme Court used to, quote, incorporate the first eight amendments in the Bill of Rights against the states as part of the liberty in the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. So the way to think about it was, if Ohio, where I I live and I teach and I work, could uh, could arbitrarily say, Strang, no free speech for you, that that would be a deprivation of liberty within the meaning of that due process clause. Yeah. And as I said, it was controversial at the time. It's kind of died down. And the process the Supreme Court used is the one that you and I had talked about earlier. Is the particular right deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the American people? And, and then the last part, I know our time's running out, is these unenumerated rights. And that's where it's been most controversial. Okay. Well, I wish we had more time, Lee. Thank you, though. That was excellent. And yeah, it's very pleasure. helpful. I enjoyed talking with you. We'll talk again. Lee Strang, again, professor of law and values at the University of Toledo. Today, we're taking a look at uh, the majority opinion, the concurrences, and the dissent in Dobbs.